Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My name is Abhishek. Today we have with us Daniel Knowles, who has written a fascinating book titled Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. The book with reporting from Mumbai, Nairobi, Paris, Tokyo, London, and a bunch of cities in America, among others, makes solid arguments and forces us to rethink our age-old perceptions of the car. It may even guilt some of us into using a bicycle that has been rusting in our backyards or our building. During his stint in Mumbai with The Economist, in addition to dodging traffic, he took the time and trouble to learn Hindi. And now he reports for The Economist from Chicago. Hi, Daniel. Kaise hai uh, Hello. For a person who's been out of touch for about a, about two, three years now, that's a, that's a good start. But you genuinely believe in the subject, don't you? Meaning you don't own a car for a start. Also for the listeners, before we get off you, your conclusion also says that owning a car is, is not all that bad. You're looking at alternatives which could actually help cities in the long run. But you believe in the subject. It's not like it was a research project and you've been at it for a while. <laughs> I mean, I think so. It comes from a place of sort of my personal instincts. I like cities you can walk around. I like cities. I like sort of being in the sense of surrounded by other people, businesses, and the kind of uh, the, the an, envi- an environment where things are happening. And I think that's sort of not really compatible with one where everybody is getting around, you know, in their own personal vehicle. Um, the best and most exciting places in the world are all sort of walkable and not everybody can have a car in those places, you know, places like Manhattan or or Bombay, for that matter. They are densely populated, busy places that that's where the interesting things in the world happen. And uh, you like cities, but what you don't like, I remember, is your, your scorn for reckless driving is real. And this is for all listeners. So Daniel and I once were on a reporting trip uh, in Mumbai and you were walking across a zebra crossing somewhere in the city. You just stood there muttering stuff to a driver who said, this is my place. And I'm thinking, man, don't get us killed or beaten up. <laughs> no one stops here at a zebra crossing. It's funny that you remember that because, yes, I think that was one of my, my frustrations with being in yeah. Mumbai was crossing the roads because, you know, I lived in Bandra and lots of people with quite expensive cars in, in that, yeah. that neighbourhood um, driving around. And you just think, what are you doing? Why are you trying to drive a Ferrari, you know, through... <laughs> down this street and why do you expect everybody to get out of your way and obviously I'm sort of belligerent enough that I didn't get out of the way and probably you know wasn't really going to get beaten up in the same way that some some people who try that might so yeah did, did you ever come close to being threatened <laughs> not not for picking a fight with a driver no so as, as a kid how was it growing up at in Birmingham is what you write uh, Moseley mm-hmm. so your first brush with the car And how was it there, Mumbai being a very chaotic uh, city for as long as I can imagine? It would have been a different world in Birmingham. When did you get your first car? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Birmingham is is sort of Britain's car city. Historically, at least, it was the sort of centre of the car industry. British Leyland were based in Birmingham. All that's left of them now is Leyland that make um, trucks in in, in India. But so it was this kind of car producing city and and a car driving city and it remains a car driving city. Um, It's quite spread out. And I was always, I think, through my entire childhood um, in a rush to get somewhere else, somewhere 
bigger, somewhere more sort of exciting. You know, and now I have a lot of affection for Birmingham and go through that comb there quite soon. But it did not feel like the most exciting place in the world at the time because you struggled to do very much in Birmingham without a car. I spent a lot of my teenage years, you know, waiting for buses and being perennially frustrated with buses. And everybody I knew as a teenager sort of, you know, was just waiting to turn 17 and to try and pass their driving test and you know get registered on their parents cars I think it was my 17th birthday I was bought driving lessons and I hated driving I realized that I found it so stressful so sort of not very good at concentrating um and you know and I was just this, this poor driving instructor was sort of horrified because I could not learn to check my mirrors um I was not paying attention pull out into the road without seeing whether there's somebody coming and I only then learned to drive in the end when I got to 26 and put some effort in because I was then about to move to the United States at that point to Washington DC and I didn't own a car until I worked in Nairobi um, a year later than that and I that's the only time I've owned a car was in, in, in Nairobi. And so between the time that you were an adolescent in Birmingham to your gig for The Economist in Nairobi. At what point did you decide that you wanted to write a book like this, of this sort? So when did the idea germinate? Well, I think it began germinating in Nairobi. And Nairobi is a city that, like Mumbai, a developing world city where most people cannot afford a car. And yet all the infrastructure that's being built is highways and expressways. And the city is spreading out. Um, and it's this kind of green very hilly place and you know every time I've been back another sort of suburb has stretched another you know several kilometers kind of further out from the city center and um and the traffic is all the more crowded getting people having to drive further and further sort of in distance to get around um the people who have access to cars that is and you get everywhere in a taxi and then the majority of Kenyans are walking and um dealing with these very dangerous roads and and having to go further and further to get to work. Mumbai has a similar sort of thing. I mean, it's an older city than Nairobi and it's, it is more crowded and you can get around on the train and on public transport. But even in Mumbai, most people can't afford a car, but live in the city where cars are filling up all of the space and hooting, you know, the constantly. And there's that that just noise pollution from the minority of people who are using their cars to get around, kind of making everybody else's life worse. So I think that's where the book germinated. I read one line here from the book is uh, you, you felt an acute sense of irony in one of the streets or highways in uh, Kenya, was it? Or East Africa, where it talks about, what was it? Freedom Road. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uhuru Highway, yes, which means freedom. And and yet nobody's ever moving on that road. It was just perennially traffic clogged. And since I lived there, they've now built a great big bypass that goes over it um, to unclog it, um, which is it partly succeeded. The bypass doesn't have much traffic on it, but it's a toll road. Um, but it's the same thing in Mumbai. You know, you have the Sealink and the coastal road coming and these highways are sort of magical, you know, ideas of, of, of freedom from traffic. But you kind of get on the Sealink and you come out the other end and you're immediately in traffic again. And, and so you sort of think that it's saving you time, but it's not really because it's just flowing, you know, it's like a, it's funneling all these cars into a, a neighborhood that does not have the space for them. So it just makes the traffic at each end all the worse. How much of uh, car ownership do you put down to culture 
in india i can say that because uh, we've been told that owning a car back in the day was aspirational in the 90s even today i've got a 4 year old now and i told this to you last year that in in their school when he was in nursery that is the first year of school 3 and a half years old they were told to go back home the kids and memorize the number plate of the cars that their parents owned so they just assumed that everybody had a car so that's how it is here so when you research this across various cities how big a role does culture play uh, in in owning a car i think the idea of that owning a car is is aspirational is enormous and and the car propaganda begins young you know it's yeah. uh, what your situation with your four year old school it happens all over the world you know kids are given toy cars mm. and uh, so it's aspirational even as a child to have a car everywhere in the world um even parts of it where car ownership remains very low like in india you know the the upper middle class the kind of and the rising middle class want to have cars and the problem with that is that a car kind of loses its use it becomes less effective once everybody's got one the more people who have one the more traffic there is and the the more everything has to spread out the more land is used by parking spaces and by roads and the less useful it is so the thing about the this sort of problem the car is aspirational but what people actually aspire to is having a car and not everybody else having a car mm. it doesn't work if everybody's got one and then weirdly i think if you go to somewhere like uh, New York even or London what's almost aspirational now you know in the richest cities in the world is to be able to live somewhere where you don't need a car if you look at the United States everything is built in such a way that 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 it's almost impossible not to have a car mm-hmm. and people really resent you know rightly the amount of time that they spend in traffic the distance they have to drive the fact that their neighborhoods are so kind of challenging to get around any other way by car their children are kind of trapped at home you know mm. teenagers can't get around until they learn to drive um elderly people are sort of reliant on their cars and driving much longer into life than they should do and getting involved in crashes you know because if you're 85 you probably shouldn't be driving but in a lot of american cities you really can't do anything unless you can drive so these sort of few remaining places that 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 have public transport and that are densely populated enough that you can walk around become aspirational but i think in most of the world it remains the case of we would like to have a car because yeah you getting a car is good for you but mm. but sort of collectively everybody getting a car is bad for society right and a very very simple or a simplistic example is where i live in thane which is the suburb of mumbai Uh, in the colony that i live uh, back in the mid 90s there was literally one car i remember maruti zen a small car at the time and today at the gate of the colony it says outside vehicles will be jammed so there is that jammer that we put in the wheels uh, because there is no not enough uh, space here there are trees falling on cars the architecture of the place where i live was not built keeping in mind the influx of cars uh, a couple of decades down the line now if you blow that up to the world Uh, the architecture also has changed over time to accommodate uh, cars itself hasn't it exactly and that's sort of what ends up happening is that as more and more people get cars and you know our cities what happens in your colony it begins mm. to to sort of happen everywhere they go oh can't get a parking space anymore oh it's so yeah. crowded it's so congested 
the end result is once everybody's got a car is that everything's just farther apart and so instead of being able to walk you know out of your door and walk you know 300 meters or something to a shop and buy whatever you need you are getting in your car and you're driving three kilometers and so in the end even though you're going faster in your car it takes you just as long to get anywhere as it sort of did if nobody had the cars because everything's just further apart because we accommodating all these cars with so much space everything has to use more land you know in bangalore there is a place called whitefield where there are these outfits it outfits etc one of my friends used to work there he said that it would take him 40 minutes to get from the corporate uh, headquarters of his company's parking space to the gate and then the traffic would begin people in bangalore uh, i've got a couple of relatives there they prefer not to step outside over weekends and order home because it's just uh, uh, you know underwhelming to go in a car to the nearest mall because it's so crowded the the tech workers in particular the fact that the economy mm. is booming there means that you know more people in bangalore have been able to buy cars than perhaps some indian cities and it's so crowded that it doesn't work and i think this is a big problem for kind of emerging market economies all over the world is that they are getting strangled by congestion before they begin you know if you go to cities across latin america you know where car ownership has got sort of half what it is here in the u.s and and the traffic is so punishing and it means that it's really hard for people to get to these these new jobs that are being Mm. created and you know and the the income that they're earning they are sort of spending on running cars instead of going on holidays or eating better or whatever it might be and i think if you look at um What's happened actually in China, they, as sort of authoritarian as they are, have realized this. They've realized the congestion is a real problem for their economies and that they're not going to be able to fix it just by building roads. They built a lot of roads, but they've also introduced, you know, ever stricter rules on who mm. can own a car. So if you want to buy a car in Shanghai, you right. have to enter a lottery and get you know get a permit. And these permits are very expensive. And in Singapore, you know, the cost of of, of your permits just to own a car is several times more expensive than the car itself. It's kind of a hundred thousand Singapore dollars to have a license plate to be able to register a car. And then on top of that, you're also paying tolls to use, you know, they have a road pricing scheme. So they deliberately made car ownership very expensive to keep it for the elites because they Mm. know that if everybody has a car that in these you know very crowded busy cities uh, they will kind of collapse under their own congestion that the local businesses won't be able to work anymore nobody will be able to get anywhere i think that realization is that's really important because otherwise you're going to have to build out cities like houston that are incredibly spread out and they're not that productive it's still the case in the united states that the highest kind of gdp per capita the best paid jobs are concentrated in the older cities Hmm. you know that were built before the car like the the richest parts of places like new york city san francisco uh here in chicago that's where the kind of the, the most best paid jobs cluster because they are not strangled by congestion economic wealth basically comes from being able to squeeze as many people into one small area as possible that's kind of my theory anyway and so it's more like uh, the governments uh, have forced their hand to fix this problem after having acknowledged it and i'll just show you a picture of uh, you you must have heard in gurgaon right the toll the, this is the picture of i have been to gurgaon 
Yeah, you've been to Gurgaon and this is a, a picture of, look at the number of cars on the road here. I think there are some 10 lanes and this happens every day. And this is a tweet from some bloke who talks about the, you know, this is Delhi Gurgaon toll, looks like pre-COVID era is back. And uh, two hours, it what it takes to drive 50 kilometers. And this is day in and day out. Getting the road wider hasn't solved the problem because as you said, when everybody has a car, you are only postponing the problem perhaps to another day. Right. And I think, you know, Indian cities have always been interesting because you have these old cities that are, for most average Indians, incredibly expensive to live in. And and average wages in Bombay are something like four or five times higher than they are on average in, in general. So if more people could kind of live or, or at least work in Bombay um, or in Delhi, where it's a similar thing, or, or Bangalore, then then people would be a lot better off. That's where the good jobs are. But what ends up happening in India is is people come from the countryside, you know, for what three or four months a year, and cram into these dormitories, or sometimes you know live on the factory floor. I remember one factory that I think we visited together in Bombay, where they were making uh, the Ganeshas. But all of those workers there were migrant workers sleeping on the factory floor, who would then go back to their rural homes, you know, for, for six, seven months of the year to keep that money that they'd earned. Because the only way that they could kind of benefit from those like high urban wages is to live in these completely intolerable conditions and then go go back to the countryside, because it's it's impossible to commute from where the housing is cheap to where the jobs pay well because the congestion is too bad and the trains are completely crowded. I know the Indian Railway Network actually is modernised, but so much of your transport budget is being spent on cars. I think I actually saw a figure the other day. It's something like 60% of spending on transport infrastructure in in India is spent on roads. The roads cannot transport as many people as a train. They never will be able to. It's just an extraordinary, inefficient way of getting people to move around. And this creates poverty. It means that people cannot benefit from the the growth that is happening, from the businesses that are investing in India, um, where the jobs are being created. They don't benefit, you know, the Indians, particularly rural Indians, who should be earning more than they, you know, are on their farms, but can't reach those jobs. They literally cannot get to those jobs and they cannot afford housing near to those jobs. And cars are part of the reason why. But how would you react to people who might say that, hey, I travel in a car because the public transport sucks. I was in Pune. Pune is about 200 kilo, 150 kilometers from Mumbai. And there is no way you can get around there in a bus. So I was on a bike during my first job there selling air conditioners in a different era. But I had to get a bike. I couldn't afford a car at the time. And the BMWs, Audis, and more of them you see today than you saw two years ago. The rich or the middle class who can buy a car today with equal monthly installments, that is EMIs, very easily, which is 9,000 rupees a month for three years or five years. So that's not a lot if somebody is earning 30,000 to 50, which is quite a few do. So because of lack of good alternatives, I own a car is what the response is. How would you react to that then? Because they have to get around. Well, this this is precisely the argument of the book. People are forced to own cars by the fact that other people own cars. It's a collective action problem. It's a business dilemma. When once people start acquiring cars, the way that sort of cities get redesigned to accommodate them means that it becomes very difficult not to have a car. And, you know, you describe Pune. If you look at where I live now in Chicago, we live in 
a neighborhood where we don't need a car and where most people don't have a car. But if you go to large parts of the city, it's very difficult to get around without a car, even though this is one of America's most densely populated cities and most stuff is within a couple of miles. And so most people do own cars. But the bulk of the sort of region, if you then go out to the Chicago suburbs, you know, which have been built since the 1950s, it's impossible to get around them at all without a car you know I, I sometimes go out to the suburbs on on the train which you can do with my bicycle and then cycle to wherever I need to go but a couple of times I've kind of come out of a train station and you know cycled a couple of kilometers and on the way to you know the destination that I'm trying to get to and then you try to and then you you end up on a road that's perhaps you know three or four lanes in each direction and all of the cars are going at I don't know 100 kilometers an hour and you do not want to be on a bicycle in that situation it's terrifying and I've seen people on bicycles in in India as well kind of trying to get somewhere on roads that are you know kind of way too fast moving and they're really dangerous and so essentially yeah you're forced to buy a car and the more people own cars and the more that things are built around the cars the more dangerous and scary it is for anybody trying to get around any other way even if you know they're on bicycles and i think i don't know what the statistics are for india but worldwide a million people a year are killed in in car crashes and that's just going up so i, I think individually getting a car is often not only a good idea it's like completely unavoidable individually but what collectively as all having so many cars is damaging. How much is it down to, you know, these uh, car manufacturers who have a job to sell cars and their their advertisements are so uh, sensual and they will lure you into... I remember 1998, that was the first time when Hyundai uh, launched its Santro, the first small car by a good foreign player, a, a proper big name. They wanted to incept the idea that now is the time that you need to move out of your Marutis, um, Maruti 800, the small car that you had, and go for something that was more swanky. And they they got uh, Shah Rukh Khan to endorse it. And believe it or not, it was such a hard sell. And I, I, I can't play the ad for you, but he goes uh, something like, uh, and, and Shah Rukh Khan is doing it. So uh, forgive me if I try to impersonate him, but he, he talks about how, he talks about some technology at the beginning. And then he says, uh, it drives longer per liter or bead bar may be driving both easy, something of that sort. International tall body design for more legroom, headroom and more luggage space. India's first multifunctional car, office, school, shopping, holiday, weekday car, weekend car, a complete family car or some such. So I've butchered his, uh, the way he talks, but imagine the biggest superstar telling you that this car is your new home. It can do everything that you imagined and more. If your neighbor has one, then you've got a problem. Go get one. It's a different story that these cars don't make enough money, is what you say, that the, the gross margin is some 6% behind a car. So they have got to do everything it takes to sell them. Again, going back to culture. Selling cars is, is not that individually profitable. You know, car companies often get in trouble, particularly when there's a big recession. You know, they employ a lot of people, so they have political clout. Um, car manufacturing jobs are seen as good jobs. But the advertising for cars is or is pushing people always to try and buy the more expensive car, the fancier car. And it really relies on 
building brand loyalty and on building kind of a willingness to think of a car as more than just a means of getting around because that's where they can make money. The most profitable cars are the more expensive cars, particularly the bigger cars, these SUVs, you know, they have much higher profit margins because the people buying them are people who who have bought into this idea, who, who are convinced that, you know, a car is an extension of your personality. The least profitable cars are the ones that are just for getting around the small cars though because if you're if you just need a car you buy the cheapest car you can that works and all you care about is that it works and it's reliable that's where the competition is you will just pick the cheapest one and whereas if you think that you know a car defines who you are and it makes you a man then you go and buy a giant pickup truck or something that has and you're willing to pay more so that's so they're constantly trying to sell this idea of kind of cars as an extension of your personality and if you notice kind of actually i don't know about indian car adverts i haven't seen one for a while but american car adverts and european car adverts are always the driver you know there's never any traffic jams there's (laughs) never pedestrians in the road they're always driving you know through like beautiful countryside on an empty road or else in a city that's mysteriously free of people of anything (laughs) What the car industry sells you is this idea that you will be the only person with a car. But Mm. the reality is you won't. You'll be stuck in a traffic jam going at seven miles an hour, you know, 10 kilometers an hour with everybody else's cars and the kind of great joy that you're promised. Complete illusion. Which are some of the cities that you visited uh, you think are doing great? Uh, What could we learn from them? And can, more more importantly, if someone's made, someone has been in this direction for a while, can you actually press the undo button and try and wean uh, the city off, you know, the traffic? Well, let's talk about Tokyo first, because that one that I think really stands out. Tokyo is the biggest city in the world. For now, you know, it has something like 38 million people in the metro region. And it works because most people don't drive in Tokyo. It has mm. one of the lowest car uses of any kind of rich world city. And... The way the reason this is, is is sort of luck in that the 1950s when, you know, every um, other kind of country in, in Europe and certainly the US were building highways and building motorways and, and, and sprawling out. In Japan, they they were very focused on rebuilding industry and they didn't want to kind of use their scarce capital, their scarce resources to build motorways, to build roads. Um, and they have one of the least developed kind of road networks of any country in the world so they built railways and they put on these policies that said they didn't say you can't have a car but the two big policies that made a difference is that if you want to own a car you are legally required to own a parking space for it and you have to prove you know you have to go to the local police station and show i own a garage or i own a a parking space and so uh and then they give you a certificate that allows you to buy a car and the other thing they have is they have no street parking. So you can't just leave your car on the street at all. If you want mm-hmm. to park it, you have to park it in a in a garage. So, you know, if you leave your home and drive somewhere, you go maybe to a shopping mall, you have to park it in the shopping mall's garage and you have to pay for the parking. But they're not giving away land for free to park cars. Right. They are charging what the value of the land is. And the other thing they have is that all of their expressways, and they did build expressways, and some people 
who've read that chapter are like, well, what do you mean Tokyo is a car-free paradise? They have all these overhead expressways, and it's true. But their expressways are tolled, and you have to pay, I think it's something like 200 yen a kilometer. It's, uh, no, maybe it's 20 yen a kilometer, but it's it's one of the highest kind of toll rates of anywhere mm. in the world. And so people do own cars, but they only use them when it's appropriate, you know, when they have to transport something big and heavy, or if they are going into the countryside where you can't reasonably take a train but for most travel people in Tokyo use the trains or the buses or they use public transport or they cycle um they have a lot of people cycle um more in fact than Amsterdam believe it or not they don't subsidize public transport even it's profitable they don't try and use all these means to 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 sort of force people out of cars they just Mm. say you know you can drive but if you drive you have to pay the the full cost of driving yeah. and using the roads and everywhere else in the world we give away land for free we say you can leave your car you know anywhere on the street and for free and however much it blocks people's way blocks the road that's fine and so so people are sort of subsidized right. to drive it's very difficult once you've done that to undo it but i think it's happening well you spent time in london if you london 30 years ago was central london was much more congested. And, you know, in the 1980s, people uh, before, before, I think either of us were born even, but if you look at old photos, people used to double park everywhere. It's a bit like Mumbai now, kind of people just tried to drive everywhere, left the cars, kind of abandoned anywhere they could, blocked the roads, trying to park. And there was this sort of central London, you know, like the bridges that crossed the Thames used to all kind of be lined with parking spaces and it was very polluted and very congested. And, and, and what changed was in the early 2000s, London introduced a congestion charge, um, which you had to pay to, to drive into central London. And that immediately reduced the number of people driving in by about 20%. And then gradually over the kind of last 20 years in, in central London, at least, they've been, been getting rid of parking spaces, getting rid of places right. that you can kind of leave your car for free. And and the public transport's been invested in. And gradually uh, London is becoming a place where fewer and fewer people drive. And when I lived in London, never felt the need to own a yeah. car. Very rarely even use right. taxis. I think Paris is doing very similar things. Paris has been doing um, things with bike lanes um, and converting roads to bike lanes and getting rid of parking spaces. Um, Amsterdam has been doing it for 40 years. But a lot of European cities that we think of as being, you know, lovely and walkable kind of 40 or 50 years ago were completely traffic clogged. Kind of like Mumbai is now, actually, like Mumbai is now. If you begin to get rid of the cars, particularly from those older cities, they become much more pleasant to walk around. Yeah, we have that on Sundays where they convert some of the streets to walking streets and, you know, reclaim the streets, that kind of a movement which has been going on for the last five, seven years. But it is more of a fashion statement than a concentrated effort to change things. Uh, but I found it interesting that in, in you write that in Amsterdam, which is synonymous with bikes. It wasn't the case in 1960s, was it? There was a big, you write that a furrow and uh, activists lined up on the streets, including school children that, hey, we will not let cars come here. And then they changed. Cities have made mistakes and then they've corrected themselves. Yeah. Look at the 1960s. You know, car ownership in Europe really took off after the Second World War. And suddenly all these old cities were you know completely traffic clogged and yeah you can find photos of Amsterdam from the 1950s 1960s with sort of you know four lanes of cars as jammed as that photo you you showed earlier of uh of, of Gagad and uh, you can find photos of kind of central Paris you know the the land around 
around sort of the great attractions of Paris, surrounded by, by car parking. You know, they dro- drove these roads through and attempted to try and rebuild cities to make them open to cars. Prompted it in, in Amsterdam was there was this big surge of children being run over by cars and killed. And this led to a lot of protest. And around yeah the, the 1970s, they began to separate the cars, bike lanes back in, began to make it harder to drive through central Amsterdam. And, and, and that's kind of where the whole biking obsession in the Netherlands emerged from. And of course, it's very flat. You know, you can cycle, you can take your bike between cities on bike lanes in the Netherlands. It's a small country, which helps. But, but it wasn't inevitable, essentially. It was kind of done deliberately. What about these uh, electric cars, uh, the whole idea that they will change the world because they will not pollute as much? And uh, you went to Congo where cobalt, mm-hmm. which is a very key raw material for batteries, I think uh, so much so that I think a significant part of a battery is the rich mineral. What was your experience in, in Congo? If you could paint a picture of how it happens on the ground there. And uh, do you see that being a solution of any kind? So, yeah, so I went to a town called Kolwezi, which is in southern Congo, and it has probably the richest um, kind of veins of copper and cobalt anywhere in the world. Over half of the world's cobalt comes from Congo and pretty much from the area around Kolwezi. Mm. And it is this sort of moonscape landscape where mines have dug up almost everything, you know, and, and not only these big industrial mines, you have, you know, the people who live there have dug out sometimes literally under their own houses because they've struck ore it's you know it's it's not uh particularly good for congo because this you know i write about a thing called the resource curse which is sort of it's perversing where if you are a poor country that has an awful lot of mineral wealth mm-hmm. it turns out sort of make keeping your country poor because mineral wealth sort of sustains the corrupt uh violent government on that runs the place and that's mm. certainly the case with congo and it means that you know when the government doesn't have to sort of raise taxes for ordinary people it doesn't have to nobody is holding it to account and so yes yeah, so the resource curse is real and and mm. i think you know one of the consequences of trying to electrify cars is that we are having to develop these new resources such as mines in congo such as lithium mines uh, a lot of which are in south america which is very environmentally destructive in itself produces a lot of carbon in itself and it has all these downstream consequences and so mm. i think if we just try to replace all 1.5 billion cars in the world with electric cars it's going to be extraordinarily difficult and damaging to do so and so we do need to replace cars with um electric cars so that we reduce our kind of climate emissions um electric cars are a lot cleaner once they're built but we also need to have less cars and right now we're just having more and more cars every year, you know, something like 80 million cars a year are built worldwide. And I think we're deluded if we think that sort of electric cars alone are going to fix all the problems. In India as well, I think September 2021 was when the sale of uh, SUVs, the sport utility vehicles, outstripped that of the small car, which Shah Rukh Khan had endorsed back mm. in 98. Traffic is getting harder cars are getting bigger. That's just Mm. the way it is, at least in a country as big as India. And even with uh, electric cars, I found this uh, interesting that when the rubber hits the road, quite literally, the dust from the tires and the braking, that accounts for a good half of the dangerous particulates produced by vehicles is what you write. So it's not like it's a paragon of uh, anti-pollution. We are missing a big opportunity with electrification because everything's focused on these very big, heavy Mm. cars that 
that go very fast um, and use a lot of electricity of electrifying those. And the big benefits are from electrifying much smaller vehicles. And I think that is happening in India. I've read about kind of, you know, rickshaws that are electrifying yes. now. And that seems really positive because, you know, those little vehicles often which have two stroke engines, they generate a vast amount of the pollution, which, which you know, is so kind of toxic particularly in Delhi and so if you can electrify those you can get huge benefits you electrify all the two-wheelers you know that everybody's going around replace like the little motorbikes with you know with electric motorbikes you get huge benefits but all of the kind of global energy is is being spent on electric cars all the car manufacturers are building great big expensive cars we should be thinking about much smaller vehicles that don't go as fast that don't need as much you know a bigger battery and as much kind of electricity to charge them they can still do the job of you know whatever it might be of moving you around of transporting stuff through a city of that's where the energy ought to be in my my opinion wasteful from what i understand in this chat as well and in the book is uh, only policies can turn this around in that you, know, you make it so difficult for someone to own a car and that's when they will stop doing that then. Whether it's congestion pricing, whether it's a toll, I think speed caps may also help at least to reduce accidents in the like Mumbai-Pune. It's a pretty long expressway hmm. where people used to go at 140 kilometers an hour, but now even BMWs are in line. They will do it at you know 80 kilometers per hour. So you see that being a solution, what could be the solution to at least stem the rot? As you say, the, the big political challenge, you know, when it comes to my argument, to what I'm trying to say in this book, the big challenge is getting governments to make unpopular changes because owning a car is already very expensive. And when people have bought one and committed to it, they feel like, oh, if I'm charged on top as for parking and to use the road that's terribly unfair and so there's a huge constituency of people who basically are very committed to their cars they're literally already invested in their cars and in the kind of places that they live that are built for cars so it's very difficult to kind of turn the ship around and go the other way and i think even people who sort of understand the number of cars you know overall being bad for society what everybody wants is other people's cars to be taken away but not their own everything ultimately is about a collective action problem i feel like most of what i'm writing journalistically not only about this in this book but it's just this is collective action problem people understand that everything should be done better but they don't want to be the first mover to change they don't want it forced on them and i i think that's where it comes that's that's a huge challenge and the argument i'm trying to make for in this book is you know that uh to to try and set some of that aside that we could all be better off and and you quote uh, the last one is you quote gustav petro who's a mayor of bogota for colombia's capital where a developed country is not a place where the poor have cars it's a place where the rich use public transportation so that would be your you know success in that you know this if you see that happening in in various cities there's a photo that went viral on Twitter recently of um, Paul McCartney, you know, the Beatles singer yes. on a train and uh, just, you know, getting around. And I think yeah. that that's that's the, tr- the truth of it. If a society that's quite equal mm-hmm. and that's quite successful and where the highest quality of life is are places like the Netherlands or, or Copenhagen, Denmark. The royal family get around by bicycle and have yeah. been the crown princess who's sort of seen tra- transporting her children in, in a cargo bike. And so I think sort of, yeah, a, a really, truly successful country is one where where 
everybody feels like they share public transport can feel safe you know being out on a bicycle and where the i think car obsession and inequality is something that i almost didn't write about enough in the book i think that Mm. an awful lot of the car instinct comes from the very rich trying to basically protect themselves from having to share space with poor people Mm. and a car is your own little personal bubble away from it and the most unequal countries in the world are the ones that are also the most traffic clogged and the most car centric so i think sort of getting rid of cars is it's a it's a way towards in developing your country it's a way towards becoming a more equal equitable place in itself and if you are a more equal equitable place then you probably won't rely on the car as much well daniel thank you so much for your time on this podcast this was fun thanks a lot this is this is great really enjoyable the Carmageddon is also out in Kindle in India, uh, not too yes. long ago. Yes. So. Yes, I'm afraid it's it's available on Kindle. Uh, it is otherwise, I'm afraid, only available in imports in hard copy, which is is somewhat expensive. But the Kindle version is is a uh, is available in India now. Lovely. Thank you again, and all the best with all the success of the book yet Great. again. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Avishek. Bye. Right.